Well, good morning, everyone. Wonderful. We're continuing in our series in the book of Psalms, and we're now uh, getting towards the end of it. It's kind of bittersweet for me. It's been a wonderful time in this book, and for us, kind of reaching the end is one of those things like, I look forward to the next series, and we're actually going to be starting in the book of John, starting in January. So the whole January all the way through May will be in the book of John, which we've discovered this cannot do it justice, but we're going to do what we can. I've actually heard of a church that's been in the book of John for eight years, so um, that's not us. (laughs) But we're finishing up the book of Psalms, and we only have a couple more left. Tomorrow night, Christmas Eve service, and then December 30th, we'll be finishing up in the book of Psalms. And it's been a wonderful journey together as we dive into the anatomy of the human soul, as we look into the book of Psalms, as we see how it, what it is to lament. We see what it is to rejoice and give blessing. We see the major themes of the King is coming. We see the incredible themes of ascension and praise and how to walk in the righteous way. And we see it as a wisdom book, as a, as a book of psalms singing together. We see it as a hymn book. And so this book of psalms has been an incredible journey. Today I want us to see this, this incredible psalm of kingship. This beautiful psalm, what it means to be a king. Earlier this week, I was looking at images of the nativity scene, uh, kind of doing research for this sermon and the Christmas Eve sermon. So I was looking at images online, you know, if you go to Google Images, type in nativity scene, and I was looking at all these different images of the nativity scene. And I'm just going to be honest with you, not a big fan. They look a little weird. In particular, the ones that have Jesus looking like, like he like, knows everything already. You know, like a newborn Jesus that kind of like has his look at you, and you look at him, he looks at you, and he's, you're like, you know me already. I don't like it. I mean, I guess Jesus might know. I don't know how that works. <laughs> I don't know what Jesus thought of as a newborn babe or any of that kind of stuff. But I don't like the ones where the nativity scenes where they make him look like he knows too much. That's just me, personal pet peeve. I also like the scenes where like Mary is so prominently displayed. You know, like she's a central figure. I'm also annoyed, but not as annoyed as other people are at about this, but I am annoyed that the Magi are in this scene as well. There are other pastors who I know who are really annoyed by that. I'm just a little annoyed by it. But I don't like it either, because they weren't actually there at the nativity scene, in case you didn't know that. If that just blew your mind right now, you're welcome. (laughs) But one thing I did notice, in every image I saw, it was so cool, especially the old images, I saw everybody looking to the baby Jesus as if they were paying homage to him. It was really cool. I saw the angels and the shepherds, and everybody was like looking at Jesus. And my favorite ones were the images were even the animals. They're like the cows, and like, which I don't even think they had cows there, but they had these, these things that had cows, these pictures of cows. And all the animals were looking at Jesus, like kind of bowing their heads a little bit. And that is a correct scene. That is a correct attitude. The artists got that. The ones who, who painted the animals in such a way, they got what the nativity scene is about. The nativity scene is a presentation of the king. It's his arrival. It's Rafiki lifting up Simba for the animals of the land to see and pay homage to. You guys know what I'm talking about. That great scene, one of the best movies. <laughs> Circle of Life, that amazing song. Then the baboon lifts up Simba, and every animal roars. You get like a big, whole loud roar, and then they all get down on one knee and they bow, right? That is the proper posture for us as we celebrate Christmas. We roar with praise. We delight. We take knee. We say, this is the king that we worship. He has come, and he brings peace. See, guys, who would have known that that beautiful Disney movie 
is going to be the most accurate picture of the nativity scene ever, right? You guys are welcome. From now on, every time you watch Lion King, think of that. I think there's a new, a new movie coming out, actually. When you all watch that, think of Christmas. Philip Ryken is a president of Wheaton, and in his, uh, this actually sermon is a lot of based on what his, what his sermon was on the same topic. But he believed that Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphant on the donkey, he believes what was being read in the temple at that moment and that day was Psalm 24 by the priests in the temple. Psalm 24 is known as a song of the glorious king. And this very psalm was being read inside the temple for the priests to hear while the people outside were proclaiming Jesus as this potential Messiah king. As they were laying down palm branches, as they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the psalm of the glorious king was possibly being read in the temple. Psalm 24 is a psalm that's divided into three stanzas. The first praises the Lord as creator, the second receives him as savior, and the third welcomes him as king. So first praises the Lord as creator, second receives him as savior, verses three through six, and the third welcomes him as king, verses 7 through 10. So it's not certain when this psalm was written, but we can make an educated guess. The psalm is about God making a royal entrance into his holy city. Therefore, most scholars believe that it was written when David first brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And then the Ark was the symbolic, the, the very presence of God where he dwelt with his people. So who can tell me, trivia question, what was inside the Ark? Say that again, I can't hear anybody. They're just mumbling. <laughs> you guys are moving your lips, so you guys think I know, you, you, like, you guys will make me believe that you know what you're saying? <laughs> Ten Commandments, yes. What else? Aaron's staff, yes. Manna, good job, guys. We would win Jeopardy. Bible Jeopardy, that was a category, we would dominate that. Which I always love when they have that as a category in Jeopardy. Makes me feel smart. Um, then they had something else. On top of it, in between the angels, they would, what was that area called? Anybody know? That's correct, the mercy seat. And this beautiful ark was representative of God's very presence on earth. The ark of covenant had often brought God's people victory in battle. It led them through Jordan and brought down the walls of Jericho. Yet it was captured by the Philistines. And then the Philistines soon discovered how dangerous it was to be in the presence of a living God. They started dying, so they shipped it back to Israel. For a time, the ark remained at the house of Binadab, another cool name. But once his kingdom was settled, David decided to bring it to Jerusalem. The problem was that it was dangerous. At one point, they decided that the ark was safer to stay in the house of Obed-Edom. And when God saw that Obed-Edom was being blessed, he decided that when David saw that God was blessing Obed-Edom, he again decided to bring the ark to Jerusalem. That was the occasion, or may have been the occasion, for the writing of Psalm 24, which ends with God entering his holy city. This time in Israel's history when God made that royal entrance was when the ark of the covenant was brought up to Jerusalem. So we believe, scholars believe this was the occasion in which David wrote this psalm. And it begins like this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. These verses assert God's absolute ownership of everything there is. The whole world and everything belongs to him. 
This includes not only the world itself, but everything in it, all the rocks, the trees, the birds, the animals, the blue whales, the, the narwhals. It all belongs to God. All the people belong to God as well, for he claims authority over everyone who lives in the world. Abraham Kuyper, a great Dutch theologian, says this. In the total expanse of the human life, there is not a single square inch of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare that is mine. And on what basis does God claim such absolute authority? On the basis of creation. The earth belongs to the Lord because he made it, he found it, he established it. God is the creator, and because he is the creator, he is also the king. God's power in creation gives him the right to rule over everything that was made. If I made a tower out of blocks, then I have the right to destroy that tower. Not Josiah, who wants to come in and destroy it and knock it down always. Frustration. <laughs> I have the right. If I build a sandcastle, it's my sandcastle, I built it. And if Gina wants to try to knock it down, I'll be like, no, Gina, it's my castle. Wait, a creator has right. This is why the debate over the origin of a creator is so important. When people disagree about the origin of the species or about how the, the world was made, the universe being made, but it's, it's about who's in charge. If God is not our creator, then he cannot really be our king. He does not have absolute authority over us. If he did not create, then he does not have absolute control and authority over us. Psalm 24 answers by saying God is ruling the universe at this very moment. In our modern day kind of idea, our scientific kind of worldview is that there is no God, there is no creator. And this is a straight-up denial of God's sovereign rule. And for us to say that there is no creator means to say there is no sovereign. So we say there is a creator and there is a sovereign. The fact that God is ruler of all is essential to the meaning of this entire psalm. Psalm 24 ends with God's entrance into Jerusalem. However, the God of Israel is not just the king of the Jews. He's king of the whole earth. So the psalm begins, guys, with this kind of like big cosmic kingship. The entrance of the glorious king is an event of universal significance because the whole world is his dominion. And if God is king of all creation, then obviously everyone owes him allegiance. However, David raises an important question. He goes, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Meaning God's holy temple. To put another way, who has permission to enter the court? Who has permission to have an audience with the king? And the second stanza answers that question. It says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. To come into the presence, one must have an outward obedience and an inward integrity, is what this is saying. This is what it's mean by saying having clean hands and a pure heart. It's not referring to like kind of personal hygiene. You know, some people definitely could not qualify for that one, namely me. Gina always yells at me. We have soap. Maybe I shouldn't tell this story. I probably shouldn't tell it, but it's too late now. Gina yells at me. Mind you, I wash my hands. But Gina washes her hands like 20 times more than I do. And I think it's part of her being a dentist or something, but literally, like, she'll have, like, like I wash my hands after I use the bathroom. That's about it. <laughs> right? Am I, am I like most men? Like, am I that normal? You take a shower and you wash your hands after you use the bathroom. 
That's about it. Gina's like, every like five minutes, she got something on her hand, she's like, oh, better wash it. I touched something, better wash it. I'm like, no. We went fishing one time. And we had like bait and fish and all this kind of stuff. And so I give her like, hey, Gina, eat this. And she takes out all these like wipes and soap and water. And I'm like, and she looks at me like, how do you eat that? I'm like, what? How do you guys do it? When you guys go fish, you guys just eat your food. You don't wash your hands, do you? <laughs> Bethany looks at me. The look on Bethany's face is such disgust. <laughs> quick, quick poll. If you're out fishing and you have, you're ready to eat, do you wash your hands first? Raise your hand. Right? If you're out fishing and you want, well, you want to eat, do you just go ahead and eat? There it is. There it is. I think I just caused a diverse, uh, the division in our church. <laughs> Thank God for the God of reconciliation. What we're talking about here is not just hygiene or ritual purity, but a keeping to God's command when it says clean hands. A pure heart refers obviously to the life of the soul. So God requires an inward integrity as well as an outward obedience. Clean hands, um, clean hands is a pure heart. This is what it means, is inward and outward um, idea. And the second half of the verse forbids idolatry and requires a telling of truth. Idolatry has to do with worshiping God and truth-telling concerns human relationships. So this verse is also about loving God and one's neighbor. So thus the four requirements, bear with me here, so if you get this, for me and the king is one who is both outward obedience, inward integrity. One who both loves God and loves his neighbor. You guys see that? See how I got there? Who can possibly meet these royal standards and gain an audience with the king? Who? The clue is in verse 5. He will receive righteousness from God his Savior. And that righteousness is to justify. So this verse is about justification, about being declared righteous in God's sight. So the question becomes, on what basis can anyone be justified before God? Well, at first, Psalm 24 seems to teach this idea of justification by works. The person God vindicates is someone who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't swear, doesn't lift up his soul to another. It sounds like God vindicates a person for doing what is right. But of course, no one can meet that standard perfectly, which is why the last few words of verse 5 are so important. From God, his Savior. Sin, God's holy hill still needs a savior from sin. He's not justified by his own good deeds, but by God's saving work. David Dixon, a Scottish theologian, says this, the holy life of the true believer is not the cause of his justification before God, but he shall receive justification and eternal life as a free gift from God by virtue of the covenant of grace. Therefore it is said here that he shall receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. Sinners can only be justified by God who saves. It is important to remember something that is not mentioned in Psalm 24, but it's essential to understanding this. It's namely that when the Israelites went up to the temple in Jerusalem, they always took a sacrifice with them. God's law demanded the removal of guilt through the offering of a perfect animal, a substitute for sin. Every day the priest offered two perfect lambs, one in the morning and one in the evening, so that no one ever entered God's presence without acceptable sacrifice. That remains true today. The requirements for entering God's royal presence has not changed. His holiness, his standard has never been lowered. The only people who are permitted to approach his throne are those who have both outward obedience, inward integrity, who love God and love people. The only way to meet those requirements is to be justified by faith, believing in the God who saves, trusting in Jesus, 
as a sacrifice for sins. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. It is possible that you are saying, I shall never enter into the heaven of God, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Look then to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust him, follow in his footsteps, and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. But how can I get the character described, say you? The Spirit of God will give you that. He'll create in you a new heart and a right spirit. Faith in Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit and has all virtues wrapped up in it. This is the good news of the gospel. You see it, don't you? It isn't the good news that you can now work hard enough and be good enough, work your way into having clean hands and wash it and scrub it enough times. It's the good news that you're not capable of being good enough. That it isn't dependent upon you. Instead, your salvation is dependent on a God who is forever good and forever trustworthy. Who can walk in? Who can enter in? Who, can, who deserves to go into this holy place, this royal attendant, this royal uh, appearance before the royal throne? Not a single one of us. But thank God that the gift of entry into it was been given to you by the work of Jesus. The gospel is this, guys, that you are far worse. You are so much worse than you can think you are. That's just reality. I'm just going to let you know. No matter how hard you scrub your hands, no matter how many, how many good deeds you think you've done, you're, you're worse. And on your dark days or in your real moments, you know you are. Right? I know I am. You know, I know I'm supposed to be this type of father, this type of husband, and those moments where I'm just kind of like children... You're so cute, but I just don't like you right now. I want nothing to do with you. Can you just stay away from me? You realize, man, how selfish am I? I got the cutest kids in the world, and I'm like, I don't want nothing to do with you right now. There are moments that you realize how dark, and you realize, here's the deal, you realize that if people actually knew you, the deepest part of you, you'd be like, ugh. Other thing is, if you actually stop and think about it and you look at yourself, you look at the deepest, darkest parts of yourself and you think, ugh, how can I even love myself? And so we're stuck in this quandary, we're stuck in this ish issue, we're stuck in this situation because we want to be known, and, but when we do kind of let ourselves be known or even love ourselves, we realize ourselves is kind of stinky. It's not very good. We have issues. And we know how, no matter how much we scrub, no matter how hard we work at it, we're not getting better. So what do we do? What, what, what hope do we have? Our hope is that our God of salvation who created us, who has ownership over us, says, I know you and I have the way for you to have right relationship. I have the answer to your human condition. And it's the good news of the gospel. That because of the gift that Jesus has done, because of the life he lived, the death he died, his free gift to you is this, that you can now be known, you can now be loved. You can now enter into the presence of the king. And you can now have him as your king. That's peace. You know why that's peace? I love this, by the way. I love here, we have here this idea of this, who is this king of glory? He's mighty. This, this kind of mighty warrior kind of idea. And it feels kind of opposite when we talk about peace, doesn't it? 
Wait, wait, wait. Well, we talk God's a mighty warrior. He's this, he has Lord of hosts and he's heaven's armies and he's a mighty powerful in battle. That seems opposite. How does that bring us peace? You know what I just thought? I thought about this when I was thinking about this. It's easy to yell peace, 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 but if you kind of have no ability and power to enforce peace, then what kind of peace is there? Right? It's easy to yell, hey, peace, let's everybody, everybody get along, but when somebody who's more powerful can just kind of like, hey, I'll punch you, and you're like, ow, and you're like, I can't stop this guy. He's, he's overpowering. Then what kind of peace is there? But when you're the most powerful, when you can level everything, then you can yell out peace because you have the power to enforce that peace. Does that make sense? We thank God that God is mighty in battle, that he's creator God. He's over everything. He has heaven's army because when he says peace, peace actually happens. Does that make sense? The Psalms climax comes in the final stanza. David has asserted God's rule over all creation and he has explained who has the right to enter into his royal presence. Now the king comes into his glory. Throw open the gates, open wide the castle door, enter the king of glory. This last stanza, and then I got this from the president of Wheaton here, I love how he talked about this, is in the form of a dialogue. It says, to understand what is happening, it helps to recall an old English tradition. According to ancient custom, when the king of England entered the city of London, a servant would herald his approach. The herald would stand outside the city wall, demand entrance in the king's name, crying, open the gate. Then the royal party would hear the response from within and say, who is there? The herald would answer, the king of England. Then the gates would swing open, and the king would enter the city and receive a royal welcome from his royal subjects. The scene in Psalm 24 is kind of similar to this. The psalm is sung with a call and a response. In David's day, it would most likely be sung by choirs of Levites, perhaps from soloists. It might, it might have gone something like this, something similar to this. The choir would stand outside the city gates. I'm not going to sing. You're welcome. But the choir would stand outside the city gates, call on behalf of the triumphant king, and they would sing, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. But before the gates could be opened, the gatekeeper had to be certain of the king's royal identity. So he would demand, Who is this king of glory? The heralds would reply, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. By this time, the royal choir was starting to get impatient, so they repeat their summons, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And as the giant gates slowly swung open, the gatekeeper repeated this question. Not because he was hard of hearing or in order to be difficult, but because he wanted to hear the happy news again. Who is he, this king of glory? And they would all sing together, the Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. Now whether or not this is how it was divided, or the main point of Psalm 24 is this, is that the Lord of all creation is the king of all glory. This was revealed when the Ark of the Covenant was brought up to Jerusalem. It was revealed in a more magnificent way when Jesus made his royal entrance on Palm Sunday. Guys, do you get this? When Jesus entered in, when he came into Jerusalem on, on a donkey, and there's numerous passages of why he entered in a donkey, but it was kingship passages, that he entered into Jerusalem in the, very much out of Psalm 24. People were proclaiming, he is the king of glory. He is the king of glory. But even that celebration was only an anticipation of an even more triumphal event. His glorious ascension into heaven. Although the Bible doesn't offer full description of that royal event, we've seen some glimpses. In Philippians, we read that God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The name the Father gave the Son was the very name mentioned in Psalm 24, the name Lord. 
which signifies that Jesus Christ is supreme God and ruler of all. Do you guys know what Christ means, by the way? Say that again, anybody? Son? Anointed. Anointed. See, it's not his last name, just in case you didn't know that. It's not Jesus Christ, JC. It's, it's not like Mr. Christ. <laughs> that would be... <laughs> it's not his last name. It means a, it's a title. It means anointed one. Where else is that title used? What's another word for that title, anointed one, Christ? Messiah. Do you hear that? This is a title given upon Jesus. And this is a title of one that says, this is the Messiah. This is the promised one. This is the Lord, the promised king. According to the book of Hebrews, when Jesus returned to heaven, he took his seat on the majestic throne. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Ephesians says, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title. We see Christ approaching the gates of heaven. Like we hear the angels sing out, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, your ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the gatekeepers of heaven can cry out, who is this king of glory? And they say, the Lord Jesus, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. How is he mighty in battle? For on the cross and in the grave, Jesus did battle with sin, with death, with Satan. He's strong and mighty in battle, breaking the stranglehold of sin, gaining victory over the powers of hell. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to shame and triumph. Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's our conquering hero. And how did our king conquer? Revelation chapter 5 says this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe, lang tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Do you hear this? When we say he conquered sin and death, when we say he is our conquering, mighty, warrior king, how did he conquer? What made him worthy? Revelation 5 says he was worthy to take it. He was worthy to take up his ownership, his kingship. He was worthy because he conquered by being slain. By ranching himself for many. Guys, I want you to hear this. We have this image. I'm using this language of God, Jesus. He's our mighty warrior. He's mighty in battle. He is powerful. And so for some of you guys might get this image, like me, because I'm a nerd, and I like this image of like a sword and like Aragorn, or I got the sword of King Arthur. I guess I have a lightsaber and Luke Skywalker. I don't care what it is that you see, but you see this mighty warrior that can just dominate the enemy and defeat him in power. And that's the image I have in my mind, but can I tell you something? When he says, how did he conquer? He didn't conquer by using his sword and smiting down all his enemies. He conquered by dying upon a cross and giving his blood, his life, for the lives of many. What does that mean for us then? If our king conquered in such a way, then how are we supposed to claim the land that he conquered? With the sword? By killing? Or maybe by following his example and dying and sacrificing ourselves for the sake of many. Do you hear that? Do you hear that, people? This is the way our king 
conquered. This is what we celebrate at Advent. God promised he would send a savior. And in the fullness of time, our savior came. He is king. He conquered by dying. He established his kingdom rule. He sent us out to expand his kingdom. And one day he's coming again to make all things new. My people, can I just tell you, very practically, very real, the call for you as we conquer forth this land, the call for you is you've been given a very specific mission. The mission, get this, hear me, hear me very well, the mission is not for you to make money and lead a happy life. I'm gonna say that again, I'm sorry. The mission that you've been given is not to just get through life and be happy and raise a few kids and enjoy life altogether. That's not your mission. That's a great byproduct. But that's just a byproduct. And that's not necessarily for everybody either. The mission for you given to you by God is this. Advance his kingdom. Claim the territory that he himself has already conquered for. And go and advance it. And the way you do it, guys, let me tell you this. This is very clear. The way you do it is not just by attending church on Sunday. It's not by saying, hey, thank you, Jesus, on Christmas and Easter. The way you do it is by living in such a way that living, the dying is gain and living is Christ. The way you do it is by doing what Jesus did, is by sacrificing yourself for the sake of many. The way you do it, guys, is hear this, just don't miss this, that you delight in Jesus so much, that he's worth so much more to you, that your delight in him and knowing him and being in relationship with him is worth so much more than you, that the, the things of this earth and all the promises of wealth that it gives you is nothing in comparison to that. And you love Jesus so much that what he loves, you love. And you say, yes, for the sake of many, what is my life? And so you share with people the good news of the gospel. So you live sacrificially. And you go to places that are hard to go to. And you have conversations that are difficult to have. And you live a life of purity, not because you're earning salvation, but because of what Christ is and what he's done for you. So you want to live a life that's pleasing unto him. And you say, I'm more about the kingdom. I'm all about the king. Do you hear that? Man, Christmas is awesome. We get to celebrate family and friends and gifts. But guys, so often, we, Christmas celebrates the wrong things. We celebrate who we are in Christ here. And our mission that Christ, our King, has given us. As followers of the King, we're called to advance the kingdom the same way he conquered. By sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. Wayport Church. Family, will you do just that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the king that we have, the king that we need, the king that gives us peace because he is more powerful, the king that meets every one of our needs, our need to be known and to be loved and to have purpose. Our king meets that need. So we thank you for the King, Jesus, and the free gift he's given us, the good news of the gospel, relationship with you. We ask, Lord, that you show us how to delight and love Jesus so well, how to move and advance your kingdom so well that we know what it's like to live for Christ and to see death as gain.
God, that we can, God, be so passionate about your kingdom advancement. God, follow the marching orders of our king that nothing else matters. Move with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.